A friend of mine who works in another church in London, um, he used to play in a rugby club. And one of his mates from the club, this was a few years back, um, found a recording of a sermon that he had preached in which he explained what the Bible says about hell. And this friend of his from the rugby club was really hurt. And he went to my friend and he said, if this is what you believe, why have you never talked to me about this? This is really serious. Why have you never talked to me about this? I thought you were my friend. Now, that's a situation we can probably understand from both sides, isn't it? On the one hand, uh, you know, hell's not an easy subject for a person to raise. I mean, at rugby practice or in the bar afterwards, when's it going to be a good time to talk to your mates about the eternal judgment of your soul? It's a bit intense, isn't it? We can understand a reluctance to talk about this sort of subject. But at the same time, it is very important that we think about it. As adults, we often have to face up to subjects that are sober but important. You have to think about the state of your health or pensions planning. You can't just keep on pushing those important issues to one side because it's just too serious and I just hope it'll all, all um, be okay in the end. If hell is real, then it's very important and it's something that we need to think about and talk about, which is why I'm really glad we have this chance now. What's going to happen is um, I'm going to try to put some ideas on the table and then we'll have a short break, as Andy said, and then we'll have a chance for some questions uh, after that. I hope that sounds okay. What I'm going to do is work through um, three questions that are on the orders of service, and I'm simply going to try to answer these by laying out what I see the Bible as, as saying about them. So first, what is hell? Uh, second, why would God send a person to hell? And then third, how can we avoid hell? And as we think our way through those three questions, it should enable us to come to some sort of an answer to the kind of overall question as billed for this evening, which is, how could a loving God send somebody to hell? I hope that all makes sense. Okay, so starting off then, what is hell? I don't know what images come into your mind as you hear that word. Maybe a kind of an underworld ruled over by evil demons with red leotards, um, pointy pitchforks, that sort of thing. Can I say, that is, that's not, not how the Bible describes hell. Hell in the Bible is essentially um, it's, um, a place of eternal punishment from God. Um, the Bible presents God as a God of justice, and in the same way as a human judge might send somebody to prison as a punishment, so God sends people to hell as punishment. Um, it's a physical place. It's not ruled over by Satan or demons. It's ruled over by God, and they are inmates. Um, so hell is um, it's God's place of punishment, and it lasts forever. We'll um, think in a little bit about how that can possibly be fair. But that's what the Bible says, that after life, for all of us, there is eternity, either eternity with God in his new creation or eternity away from God in hell. So that's what the Bible says, essentially. Hell is God's place of eternal punishment. And the Bible uses three main images or metaphors to help us feel, understand something of what that will be like. Um, some Bible passages are going to appear on the screen. The f- 
first metaphor is, is, is fire. Um, so Jesus in Mark 9 talks about those who refuse to turn back to God, those who refuse to turn away from sin being uh, sent into unquenchable fire. That's the first metaphor. The second is um, darkness. So, for example, Jesus in Matthew 25 talks about those who have not trusted in him and served him being sent out into the darkness. The third metaphor is exclusion. So, from Luke 13, um, Jesus talks about people from all over the world um, feasting with him, coming in to, to feast with him in his eternal kingdom, but others being shut out. And as he, he says it, they knock on the door, and Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. And we feel the force of that exclusion, don't we, being, being shut out from the presence of God, from that feast, from all the good things that God is the source of. There's um, a t-shirt I've seen amongst friends in the armed forces. It says, Royal Marines never die, they just regroup in hell. Or you may know the quote, um, it's attributed to more than one person, I'm not sure who said it, that one would want to go to heaven for the climate, but hell for the company, because that's where all the good fun people will end up. Well, if we take what the Bible says seriously, then both of those ideas are, are, are not right. Because friendship and um, camaraderie and wit, all of those are part of the good things that come from God. And if hell is exclusion from him, then that, that means also the absence of the things that he gives. Now, why am I calling these metaphors? Why are fire and darkness and exclusion not literal descriptions of hell? Um, well, I mean, partly for one thing, you can't have a place of fire and darkness. Um, uh, in the context of those passages, it's pictorial language. Um, also, in the Bible, there are passages that explain the, the anguish of hell, not so much in terms of the absence of God, but of his presence. And we can imagine that, that if, you know, if, if there's a problem between us and God, if, if we've opposed him, then we can imagine uh, the pain of, of finally having to face up to him um, face to face. That's why, personally, I wouldn't want to push the details of any of these um, passages talking about how I wouldn't want to push the literal details too far. Um, I think these things are beyond our comprehension, but the Bible uses this sort of imagery to help us understand something of, of the horror, um, of the pain of being punished by Almighty God forever. So what is hell? It's God's place of eternal punishment, and it's a very bad place to be. This really is a, a sober um, a sober thing that we're talking about this evening. As another verse in the Bible puts it, it, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But as we move on to our second question, for this evening, if that's what hell is, why would God send a person there? I mean, isn't he supposed to be loving and merciful? And yet, here I am saying that it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. What's going on? Well, what we need to see is that um, the Bible presents God as a real person with all the complexities of a real person. So yes, God is merciful and kind, but he is also upright and just 
And the first thing is a good thing, and the second thing is also a good thing. So in the New Testament, kind of um, perhaps a famous example, it says that God is love. And then in the very next chapter of the very same book, it says that he is light. And you can see the two sides of that, that on the one hand, yes, God is patient and loving and kind. And at the same time, he is also pure and righteous and just. Um, on the screen, you'll see some words from the Old Testament. This is how the Lord, uh, um, how he describes himself. It's from a book um, in the Old Testament called Exodus, where a person called Moses basically says to God, look, sh- show me what you're really like. And so God says this to him, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, um, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's what God says about himself. He is a God of love and mercy, which is a really good thing but he will by no means clear the guilty. He will not turn a blind eye to evil. And I want to say that that also is a really good thing. Medgar Evers was from Mississippi. Um, He was black, and he became involved in the struggle for civil rights. Until in 1963, he was murdered by a man named Byron Beckwith, um, he was shot in the chest as he left his family home. And at the time, it was widely known that, that um, Beckwith was the murderer. He was a member of a local white supremacist group. And the police found a firearm very near to the scene of the crime with his fingerprints on it. So very soon, he was arrested and charged and put on trial. The case seemed overwhelmingly strong. But an all-white jury refused to bring back a verdict. There was outcry, as you can imagine. And there was a retrial. And again, the case for the prosecution seemed overwhelmingly strong. But again, an all-white jury would not rule. And so Byron Beckwith went free. That is what it means to clear the guilty. We think about the effect that those mistrials would have had on Medgar Evers' family and for the black community as a whole in Mississippi at that time. That is what it means to clear the guilty. And God says of himself, I will never do that. I hate that kind of injustice, he says. That's what the God of the Bible says about himself. And I think that's good news. And I suspect most of you would agree. So in 1994, after 30 years, Byron Beckwith was put on trial a third time. And this time he was sentenced for the murder of Medgar Evers. And he spent the rest of his life behind bars. We feel it, don't we? In our hearts, we want there to be justice. It's a good thing. And so it is good news that God is just. It's not unloving at all. In fact, it's part of his love. I wonder if you remember from a few weeks ago at Easter time, the news that the Pakistani Taliban had set off a bomb in a children's play park 
in Lahore. Um, I go to play parks quite a lot these days, and um, the idea of that hit me pretty hard, I have to tell you. I wonder if you remember how you felt when you heard that setting off a bomb in a play park. It is part of God's love that he will not sweep that kind of evil under the carpet or turn a blind eye. He will see justice done. In an unjust world, and this world of ours is so unjust in so many ways, it is great news that God sees and he will bring justice in the end. Without prejudice, with full knowledge of the facts and the motivations, he will bring every deed into judgment. That's a good thing. But the trouble is... God's justice doesn't stop with people like Byron Beckwith and the Pakistani Taliban. We tend to react very strongly when we see evil on the horizontal level, if I can put it like that, man's inhumanity to man. And God cares about that. But he also cares about evil, in what I can, if I can call it that, on the vertical dimension. In other words, the question is not just how have I treated other people, The question is, how have I treated him? How have I treated God? Now, speaking personally, I I remember very clearly when I first faced up to this, um, this fact that there's a vertical dimension of evil. I was at university, I was looking into Christian things, and I was reading in the Bible that God was angry with me, that he was going to punish me, and that I needed very much to be forgiven And I have to tell you, I couldn't understand that at all because I'm nice. Um, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm generally polite and public-spirited. I'm not brave enough to do anything really bad. Haven't murdered anyone, haven't been involved in any bombings. Um, But what about the vertical dimension? That's the question I began to face up to. How had I treated God? I began to realize that for 18 years, I had treated him very badly indeed. I had said to him, thanks very much for everything in my life, everything that you have blessed me with. Now shove off. It's my life. I'm going to run it my way. I don't want you interfering. In fact, I hadn't even said that to him. I hadn't said a thing. I just ignored him. And what I came to see was that that's very ungrateful, totally unacceptable, That is, in fact, evil. I wonder what you think of this analogy. Um, I think we tend to think of of wrongdoing or evil as a bit like a ladder. There we go. I just hope this doesn't fall down. So you've got, I hope you can also read my writing. So you've got, um, you know, you've got the good people up at the top. Um, and then you've got the really bad people down at the bottom. So Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, you've got the... All the good people, the really bad people, a bit of a discussion about the ordering down there. Uh, I'm not sure it matters that much. And we're in the middle, aren't we? You know, you could kind of zoom in and um, we're in the middle. And what we tend to think is that when it comes to judgment, God will draw a line. You know, it's a bit like an exam with a pass mark and and hopefully he'll draw a line sort of here. And um, these people will be punished in hell and we think, well, you know, if hell's for anyone, it's for them, fair enough. But we'll be okay because we're, you know, I'm not, not, not a terrible person. What the Bible says is that it's more like this. And instead of drawing a line along there, God draws a line along here. 
And actually, we're all in trouble with him. Because what we've all done is to reject God and to push him out of our lives and to go our own way instead of living gratefully and in, in worship and in reference to him. We've all done that. And yes, of course, in some people's lives, that shows itself in very extreme ways, very bad ways. In other people's lives, it's more respectable, more private. Of course, that's true. More serious, less serious. But nonetheless, we are all guilty of the same rebellion. And that's what I came to see. And I wonder, I wonder what you think of that. Um, I wonder what you think of that, the, the vertical dimension. How have you treated God? I think this, um, this also begins to help us to understand the severity of hell that we have abused and rejected an infinitely good person. And so we deserve an infinite punishment. And we might even start to see as well how the punishment of hell actually fits the crime. Remember that um, if hell means exclusion from God's presence, it means being sent away from him, that's sort of what we're choosing in our lives when we ignore him and push him out. Somebody's put it like this, that all the way through life, we say to God, I want it my way. And in the end, God says to us, okay, have it your way. That's what I had to come to terms with, this vertical dimension of evil. God's justice is a good thing, but all of us are standing on the wrong side of that justice because of how we've treated him. So we need to come then to the third question for this evening. If that's what hell is like, and if, if, if it's what we all deserve, how can we avoid it? Well, let's look again at what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's a tension in that description, isn't there? How can he be merciful and yet not clear the guilty? I have to say that tension runs all the way through the Bible, right up to the point where God himself comes as a man in Jesus Christ and dies on the cross. Because Jesus explained that on the cross, he, as God himself, was facing the just punishment that we deserved. Justice is done. Evil is not ignored. Evil is not swept under the carpet. The punishment falls, but it falls on God himself so that other people might be forgiven. There's a Bible verse that puts it like this, talking about Jesus dying on the cross. It says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. On the cross, he bore the punishment that we deserved. That's how God is able to be both merciful and just. Our sin wasn't just written off, it was paid for. But it was paid for by Jesus so that we might be forgiven. Two years ago, I was the best man at a wedding in York. And we were using a really old, uh, um, really old building 
in, in the city called St. Michael Le Belfry, and um, it's very old, and it's, it's in amongst the kind of walls of the Minster, and it's very, like, thick, big stone. It's really beautiful, but um, it's a nightmare if you're trying to order a taxi because there's no signal because of all the stone, which um, makes it hard to be a best man there. Anyway, there's, um, there's a plaque on the wall in St. Michael's Church to one of the old ministers there from the 19th century, a guy called Andrew Fawcett. Um, Andrew Fawcett was from Ireland, but he was working over in York, and he owned some family land back in Ireland. And um, um, during one of the potato famines there, one of the families who rented land from him and farmed it uh, were really struggling. They uh, badly in debt, didn't have enough money to pay, in danger of being evicted. And so they wrote to Andrew Fawcett in York, begging that he would let them off. He replied, saying that he could not do this. It would be wrong. It would be a bad precedent. He couldn't possibly make an exception. The law is the law. He said that they must pay their debts down to the last penny. However, along with that reply, he enclosed a personal check for an amount more than sufficient to pay for all they owed. It's a tiny picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. His justice is upheld. Sin is paid for right down to the last penny. And yet mercy was also shown. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. We think back to those three metaphors and we look at the cross and we see Jesus thirsting in anguish. And we read of a supernatural darkness over the land. And we hear his cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exclusion. In a sense, on the cross, Jesus faced hell for us. So that we wouldn't have to go there. So that we could be forgiven when we put our trust in him. And turn back to him and say sorry for the way we've treated him. That's how we can avoid hell. We come to Jesus who faced it for us. I wonder what you think of that. I wonder if you think you need that kind of rescue. It's something that each of us has to weigh up for ourselves. The the playwright, George Bernard Shaw, was at a meeting, I suppose not unlike this one, and somebody was explaining about the cross, and he shouted out, I will pay for my sins myself which really well, really accurately sums up the choice that we face. Either we can pay ourselves or Jesus will pay for us. So, as we conclude, how can a loving God send somebody to hell? I think we've seen that it's not an easy question to answer really briefly. Um, We might say that God sends a person to hell justly. We might even say that it's a good thing. That God will ensure that justice is done. But we might also say that there's a certain reluctance in God in sending people to hell. That he wants people to turn back to him. And he has done everything necessary to make that possible. It's as if he says to us at the cross, you can choose to keep on rejecting me. You, You can choose to go to hell. But it will be over my dead body.
That's the bottom line here. As we think about this whole issue, we need to look at the cross where God's mercy and his justice meet and balance together. Those words again from Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty.